Since Amy provided you with a few commercials, let me add you another one. Uh, Reformed Institute event coming up at uh, the end of January, very special event. Uh, we have our convocation, of course, every year, Saturday morning, uh, last Saturday, the fourth Saturday morning, always in January. And we begin in 2017 a whole series of events to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And we will have as our speaker really one of the most uh, distinguished figures in the whole reform world today, and that is a man called Alan Bosack, uh, who is a um, veteran of the apartheid struggle, the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, a theologian, uh, former president of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. Uh, and he will be speaking on the uh, heritage of the Reformation and the struggle for justice. He's a very, very important figure, um, and I've heard him a number of times, a kind of charismatic speaker, so you will not fall asleep uh, in, that, uh, in that event. These convocations provide an opportunity for people like yourselves from a whole series of churches in the metropolitan Washington area to gather and discuss and deliberate together. It's just a morning. We'll get you out of there by noon. Good coffee uh, I co and good parking. Uh, I... I commend that to you. It starts at uh, 9.30 in the morning. You hear a one-hour presentation followed by Q&A. And I, my guess is Q&A with him will be pretty lively. So I commend that to you. Put it on your calendars. January 28th. Uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing more about it uh, here at Westminster in the, in the days and months to come. But I uh, just wanted to get that uh, word out there for you. I'm talking in this series about some very, very basic things. Um, over the years in this setting and in other churches as well, I've talked about many different kinds of things, but sometimes I think it's appropriate just to go back and look at the basics, the most basic things. Uh, and I'm talking about what uh, is basic in our tradition. All of us sitting in the pew, participating in the life of the church, have our own personal take on things. Uh, but we are part of a tradition that assumes, and I think this is one of its strengths, that we need to work together to understand things. We're not just alone. Indeed, I sense, I think in our tradition, it's a bit of a heresy to say, well, I'm just going to think for myself and that's it. Uh, we are very strongly corporate in that sense, and that means that on matters like I'm going to be discussing this morning, we work together, and we work together on the basis of a very simple premise, and that is that there's something special about Scripture. And so our, our whole project of reflection is reflecting together on the meaning of Scripture. And we have resources. We have resources to help us with that. We don't have to agree with those resources necessarily, but we respect them as, frankly, authoritative, and that is certain creeds and confessions. And those creeds and confessions are, they derive from, I think, uh, I would say, the best minds in our tradition uh, down through the centuries. They have weight, therefore. It means that at the end of the day, we can still, we're Protestants after all and not Roman Catholics, we recognize the fallibility of those who craft creeds and confessions, but still, we think they're authoritative. And that's really what I'm basing these remarks on. I talked in the first presentation about the authority of Scripture. I talked last time about uh, the most fundamental theological topic of all, which is what do we believe about God? Uh, if you were here uh, and were at all persuaded by what I had to say, I think you would walk out of the room with the following idea that Christians generally, Protestants more specifically, Reformed Christians even more specifically, have a certain way of thinking about God. A certain way of thinking about God. It affects our worship. I think it even affects our piety, and it certainly it affects sort of very practical things like the way we run our households and the way we conduct our careers. Uh, I firmly believe that people who have these convictions in any religious tradition is true, but in our tradition it's in some respects especially true. People who have these convictions can conduct themselves in the affairs of the world a certain way. Now, today I want to talk about the next big topic in this series. Calvin said there are two things that we need to know, above all, for our salvation. 
Remember what theology is about and the authority of Scripture is about for Calvin. It's not about every topic. It's not about physics. It's not even, strictly speaking, about economics, although it has implications for economics. Fundamentally, theology is about the, uh, I love the phrasing of the Westminster Confession, the knowledge necessary for our salvation. And if we're religious people, that's pretty consequential. The knowledge necessary for our salvation. And the claim is that through Scripture, from Scripture, we derive that kind of knowledge. We de derive it dimly. You know, it's not, it's not that we've got it neatly in hand, but still we've got something there that we can hold on to. Calvin said, uh, reading Scripture, reading it carefully, reading it attentively, we, we derive in the, first, in the first instance something which would be impossible for us to get any other way. And that's some inkling, I'm going to put it that way, some inkling about what God is like. In the, in, in the institutes, there's this wonderful image, and I tried to do, I didn't do justice to it last time, but of pe people sort of groping for down through the centuries, groping for knowledge of God. What is God like? And of course, if you're a deeply pious person, that's a terribly important struggle, trying to figure it out, trying to get some sense of it. Scripture gives us a kind of illumination on that. Now, the other thing that Calvin said, and this is my topic for, the, for this morning, is we derive from Scripture... If we attend to it carefully, we derive from Scripture some knowledge of ourselves, knowledge of the human condition, what human beings are like. Now, there are all kinds of things that people need to know and can know and do know about our own existence. And a lot of it is scientific today. We acquire all kinds of knowledge about ourselves if we're, even as laymen, reasonably well-informed about this current state of scholarly knowledge about ourselves. But that's not what Calvin, of course, had in mind. He had in mind the part of knowledge of the human condition which has to do with our salvation. And I would say that knowledge is the most basic, the most fundamental kind of knowledge of, uh, of all, which is why are we here? Why are we here? Now, if you're not a religious person, and I assure you, living in the academy, I confront a lot of those people. Uh, a lot of people who are not maybe not entirely self-consciously not religious, but they're not religious, would never think of darkening the door of a church or a synagogue. But even if they're not religious, if they're reflective people, they have a view on that. They may not have it well worked out, but they've got a view on that. Why are we here? Sometimes it's nothing more than just we're an accident of nature, you know, just an accident. I hope you understand the force of that. It just happens that they're human beings. Now, the Bible offers a distinctive perspective on this, and we in the Reformed tradition think it offers a very distinctive perspective on this. And that's what I'm going to try to summarize very quickly. I'll be saying a lot of things this morning that most of you, you know, of course, of course you'll say. And yet it's good to get these things in focus. And some of the things we say, of course, about are highly controversial. There is a uh, fashion today among reform thinkers, not all of them, but many of them, who want to characterize the, shall we say, reformed approach to this set of questions about who are we fundamentally and what is our place in things and why are we here and so forth. They interpret this whole way of thinking as a form of humanism. So you'll hear this term. Reformed humanism. I've heard it referred to in the pulpit down here at Westminster. I've heard it from time to time referred. Larry has preached a couple of sermons on this, characterizing himself as a humanistic thinker. Um, there's even talk of Calvinist humanism. Reformed humanism, Calvinism. So I'm going to frame my presentation today in terms of that trope that image. I think it's appropriate to use that language, but I think we need to be careful. Um, because I think that's, that move, Reformed humanism or Calvinist humanism, is a defensive posture. And you know what I'm talking about here. It's a defensive move 
vis-a-vis something that is broadly can be characterized as secular humanism. And we all know roughly what that means. And secular humanism is oftentimes very closely linked to, insofar as the topic of Calvinism comes up anymore at all in their world, as, the, as, a, as a, a secular humanism involves a kind of reaction against religious humanism, and especially a reaction against uh, Calvinist humanism. I remember when I was spending that wonderful sabbatical year in Scotland some years ago, every once in a while I would hear some really snotty reference to Calvinist humanism, as though it were a contradiction in terms. Calvinist humanism. Hmm. So I want to begin my presentation by just saying just a few words about that term. My guess is many people in this room, I don't know, if they think about it, if they write, a, if, if they discuss it with people, might embrace that label themselves and say, I'm kind of a humanistic person. I've got humanistic values. I've had many conversations with people here and on the men's retreat and so forth where that kind of theme has come up. I'm, I'm, I sort of embrace humanistic values. And we have, you know, generally that's a positive thing. So let me, let me just spend a couple of words on that before jumping into the, to the substance. Humanists sometimes say, in, in sort of summarizing their position, the following. I have faith in man, or politically correct, for I have faith in human beings. Faith in human beings. Oftentimes that's said with kind of rhetorical passion. Faith in human beings, oftentimes implied against those religious people who've got some other kind of faith. But I have faith in human beings. Now, if you put it that way, I think that's uh, them's fighting words. For us, because we have faith in God, right? At least faith in the sense that we normally use, and I'll be getting into that in my next presentation. What do we mean by faith? Well, we mean something at the center of our lives, that in which we put trust. I mean, it's, it's a profound notion. And, and if you were to say, I have, a, I have faith in human beings, you're kind of implying, I don't need that thing. I can have faith in human beings. And generally, that's connected with a very, if I can put a little spin on it, a kind of rosy view of human beings. You know? I mean, otherwise, why would you say it? Well, of course. I mean, this gentleman has said, what is the justification for faith in human beings? And I, by the way, I, I, that, I'm not going to treat that as a rhetorical question. You may have put it that way. But, but you know, it would be the opening to a, converse, a very serious conversation. But let me just, let me just say, it, 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 if you define it that way, then almost by definition, Christian humanism, or for that matter, Jewish humanism, of which I'm certain there it exists, probably Islamic Muslim humanism, although I'm not knowledgeable enough to know, but if you define it as kind of faith in humanity, let's put it that way, if you put it that way, then you're almost implying that religious humanism is somehow illicit or it's a contradiction, and I think that's just silly. It's an ignorant comment, if I can be a little professorial here. It's just an ignorant comment. Why? Because down through the centuries, there have been some of the most important, eloquent voices in, in talking about humanism. Think of Erasmus, for example, the great Renaissance humanist, who was a thorough Christian, a dedicated Christian. Yeah, Catholic, of course. And by the way, not entirely enthusiastic about our brand of Christianity. He was kind of, to the end, said, I don't want to be one of those protestants. But a Christian, a Christian humanist. So the notion that you somehow have got to script God out of it in order to be humanist is just silly. So let me recast it here. So what would it mean to be a humanist apart from that? Or you might say in a, a bigger tent version of what it means to be a humanist. So I would suggest several things. One, it's to believe something which is terribly important. And that is the human lives of great value. Now you might say in this environment that we're, in, that we're in here today, well, of course, I assure you, there's nothing of course about it. You now look down through the ages, many people would say human beings are you know, disp disposable. And if you have any doubts about that, just look around the world. There are people who think human beings, the loss of a human life, big deal. 
compared to this whatever other project they've got. Or there are people sometimes parading themselves in the name of scientific views who say human beings, there's nothing special about human beings. There's nothing special. Going back to that comment I made earlier that uh, the existence of human beings is just an accident of nature. You know, it's, a human being is no more consequential than an ant. Well, so to be a humanist is in part to say there's something special about human beings. And note that that's a, that's a moral stance, that's a political stance. A human life matters. I would say that's the point of departure for all of this. And, and if you think, as I say, if you think that's not a partisan position, you need to think a little harder. Because that is a partisan position. And it's politically still a partisan position. Is a human life precious? I'm sorry. Is a, <laughs> Is, is, is a human life precious or not? I hope I'm not preaching a, a, a necessary sermon here. So, so that's one thing. A second thing that humanism typically entails is a kind of, how do I say this? A kind of affirmative, and I'm tempted to say lofty view of human possibility and of the achievements of which human beings are capable. Humanists typically get kind of eloquent and dewy-eyed about what human beings can do. You know, human beings can do wonderful things. And they talk about scientific achievements and artistic achievements and, and acts of courage and, and, you know, on and on and on and on. Human beings are capable of... You know, I'm tempted to... I need a little music here to get this, you know... <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying, you know? And typically, a lot of the humanist argument has to do with the record of human achievements. Just, just think of that symphony that we all... Think of an amazing thing it is. A human being is the kind of creature who can do that. Wow. Wow. That's, and I think that is kind of part of the humanist ethos, is it not? You know, too. But a third thing, which is also part of humanism... The package, if, if you will, is this, a kind of optimistic view of what human beings are likely to do. I hope you see there we're getting into a little controversial, more controversial territory. And oftentimes humanists, this is the faith in humanity thing. The faith in humanity thing oftentimes takes the following character, has the following quality. Well, if they're given half a chance, human beings will do the right thing. Something like that. That's a little too quick. But if, if they're just given half a chance, their human beings will, will do the right thing. Well, uh, see, see, I've got the I've got the echo chamber down here. You know. <laughs> but, but 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 let's let's give it a good example of this would be somebody who on some questions was just eloquent about this was John Dewey, you know, the educational theorist, you know, who had this incredible he would call it faith in humanity. And a lot of it had to do with education. If only, you know, da, 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 da. If only we could just create conditions in which everybody has a chance to develop his or her talents and use those talents effectively. And the implication was, and this is now I'm getting down to the hard core of this. The implication was if those conditions, and by the way, people who think this way typically call themselves progressive. If we can just create the right conditions, then the bad things that human beings are capable of will somehow fade. Hmm? Will fade. And it's very closely linked to a very important part of the, the whole legacy of the Enlightenment, which is part of this, that progress is possible. And I'm talking about progress in a very specific sense. One of the things I say to my, my students that the other day may be at too much length, but I said one of the things you need to get clear about if you're going to study politics in a serious way is the meaning of the idea of progress, the specific meaning of that word is used all the time. And here's what it means specifically in the history of ideas. It means lasting improvement in the human condition. Note, lasting. It's not one step forward, two steps backward. It's not three steps forward. It's... it's Moving forward in some kind of, shall we say, relatively unambiguous way. I think that's what modern people believe by progress. 
And of course, there's all kinds of progress. There's technological progress. There's intellectual progress. There's moral progress. And I think really what's talked about in relation to humanism is moral progress. If only we can create the right conditions. And some say this pretty flatly. Racism will go away. Even war will go away. Or at least it'll dramatically recede. All right, and I've gone on too long here, but I hope you understand. There's a kind of, shall we say, set of presuppositions here. You can take part of it, you can take all of it, but that's the humanist ethos. Now, with that as background, here's the question I want to pose. Does it make any sense at all for someone sensibly to characterize the tradition in which we stand as humanists? Everybody got the question? <clears throat> Humanist. The tradition in which we stand, which has got, of course, people like Zwingli and Calvin at the, at, the, at the core of it, and then flows down through the centuries to, I mentioned Bart, Reinhold Niebuhr would be another one, and by the way, if you want a single text, still eminently valuable, to get at the topic I've been discussing, I'm discussing here this morning, read His Nature and Destiny of Man. Lectures given in the time of the Second World War, when the Second World War was sort of on the threshold. And there's this long, very reformed theological reflection, kind of like what I'm doing today on the human condition. Biblically based. Now, are people like John Calvin, Karl Barth, even more Reinhold Niebuhr, who was constantly sort of debating, literally in public arenas, with somebody like John Dewey about this, about this very issue. I think yes, but I want to be very specific about this. I think it's a different kind of humanism. I say that with some pride. I think it's smarter than the, some of the other more secular versions of humanism. It's a kind of cautious and I would say critical humanism. Those are the two words I want to use. Cautious and critical humanism. And let me just stay once again. I'll say it probably too many times this morning. I think if you adopt this, if you have this view of life, you're going to live your life somewhat differently than somebody else. You'll see by the end of this what I mean by that, if you can stay to the end. <clears throat> What's the justification for treating the view I'm about to articulate, based, it was, it's claimed, on the Bible. What's the justification for treating that as a kind of humanism? Well, in one sense, this is an absolute no-brainer. Duh! In the following sense. I'm going to say some things now which you have heard over and over again, but maybe not with this humanist thing in, in, in your mind. So let me just restate it. If you read the Christian Bible, which of course is partly, a lot of it, is Jewish scripture. If you read that Bible, it just seems to me unmistakably humanist in its affirmations. Remember what I've said about what humanism is. For example, let me take that key point about treating human life as precious. I mean, I think, and of course that's one of the great power, the, one of the powerful things about so many of these sacred texts, but the Christian Bible in particular and the Jewish scripture is this, this eloquent affirmation that, and by the way, Amy's prayer captured this, in the eyes of God, every single human life is precious. Hmm? Even, dare I say, the most despicable one. Now, that's not a small claim. And by the way, if you just sit in worship, or let alone meditate on Scripture, I don't see how that can't come right into your consciousness in a profound way. So the taking, I hope you see why this is related to all kinds of ethical questions, the taking of a human life is consequential. Ooh, is it consequential? Child of God. And but, but by the way, I've just warmed up now. I'm not even getting to to, to the good stuff. I, that's just the general. Is it not the general? Doesn't that flow right out of Scripture? 
Now, we can debate, and we have to, and we will for, you know, for centuries, and we'll continue to do so, the specific ethical implications of that, but that grounding premise is fundamental. Then, another point, and somehow a point which grates on some people when you think about the implications of it. Not only are human beings, each and every human life, precious in the eyes of God, but human beings have been created in the image of God. Whoa! Whoa! In the image of God. And of course, that implies a kind of, and this is oftentimes said by the critics, a kind of anthropocentric view of life. Because it's related to another <coughs> idea, which is that human beings have some kind of what? Management role, if I can put it crudely, in relation to the rest of nature. Take dominion over nature. Hmm? Think about that. Note, I hope you see a certain picture is already emerging here. Human beings are valuable. Human beings have this special status. We don't say an elephant is created in the image of God, I don't think. Certainly not in our tradition. Human beings are created in the image of God. Now, of course, that's an opening for a long conversation, which I can't get into here if I'm going to get through my talk, about what precisely that means. I'm going to just leave you to your own imaginations and reading on that subject. Calvin said, though, pretty much very traditional, conventional things. He said human beings have reason. And by the way, by, in that sense, he was just you know, a good Catholic. Human beings have reason. They also have this willing capacity, which lesser beings do not, and so forth. And most important, they've got souls. And those souls will endure for eternity. And, next point, go on and on, think about this, the whole biblical story is God, what, trying as much as possible to create circumstances which allow for communion between human beings and God. And for the point of view of, of people who think of God as, as sort of completely remote, completely different from ourselves, that's a preposterous idea. It elevates human beings to this incredibly lofty status. God seeking communion with human beings. I don't want to go so far as to say God needs community with us, but there is a kind of pull in that direction in the biblical story. Think of how elevating that is about human beings. <clears throat> and then, I, I say, as I say, I haven't even gotten to the good part yet. Here's the good part. Of course, the preposterous thing from the point of view of every non-Christian, we, literally, this is the foundation of our entire religion, we believe God became incarnate in a single human being and frankly a rather exceptional, odd choice from, from, from the human point of view. By the way, the idea of an incarnate God was not unique. It's a common thing in antiquity. But note that almost always the, the, the figure in whom the God was incarnate was some lordly figure. You know? Some prince. Some lofty one. So we worship. Well, you know this story. We're into Advent now. I mean, it's a preposterous thing, but in a way it's the heart of the core of what Christianity is all about. The lowly one is the incarnate one. Even, that, even Let me just step back from that. The very notion of incarnation, especially in the way we understand it, it just elevates human beings. Karl Barth has a wonderful little book called The Humanity of God. When you think about it, it's just contradiction. But it's about the incarnation, the inhumanity of God. I could go on, but I hope you get the point here. There are so many themes in the Bible which powerfully lend themselves to interpretation as a kind of theological affirmation of humanist ideas. Oh, by the way, there is, and Calvin emphasizes this very strongly, human beings have these extraordinary capabilities. Calvin, being intellectual, Renaissance man, very appreciative of good music, you know, scientific inquiry, says part of the wonderful thing about human beings is that they've been, they've been empowered with these qualities that enable them to do these extraordinary things, you might say, worldly things. That's part of the image of God for him. So, write that humanist idea. It's right there. It's right there. 
And, oh, I have to add one other thing. Pardon me. If you think carefully about what we are being summoned to be and do, especially in the New Testament, you know, there's a kind of drawing us in a certain direction. Well, if you read Jesus' statement, the, the statements attributed to Jesus, they basically are this. We're being summoned to be perfect, <laughs> even as your heavenly Father is. Now, you don't address that to a cipher. You address that to a human being, to a kind of creature who, in a sense, is capable of a certain kind of perfection. That in a, is a kind of eloquent sort of humanist statement if you want to read it that way. All right, now that's, that's, that's part of the story. And by the way, that would be, I think, the beginning of my rejoinder to anybody who says Christian humanism, let alone reformed humanism, is a contradiction in terms. I would say, come on. Just look at the... I would go so far as to say much of what I have said in the last few minutes is the core message of the Bible. It draws us to think about human beings in a certain way. But it also draws us to think about human beings in, shall we say, another way as well. I've got the word up here, flawed. Human beings are flawed creatures. That's a gentle way of putting it. That's a gentle way. And, of course, our tradition uh, is not content just to say flawed. It's, I got the other word up there, too, depraved, human depravity. Ugh. Now, that's what, the, that's what the people who say, come on, this is not humanism. This is not humanism. I know there's all that rosy stuff in, the, in certain parts of the Bible, and you can find it there, and yeah, 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 but there's also this, shall we say, dark stuff. And by the way, the people who talk about the dark stuff can talk about a lot of stuff. It's not just a little phrase here and there. It's not just, you know, a lot of times people beat up on Paul for this. They say, you know, Paul is really just so negative. It's actually not that simple at all, but there's a lot in Paul that's... Well, think about that you know, famous passage. I think it's in Romans 7 where he says, the good that I want to do, I can't do. And, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of a, it's a discussion of a kind of, from, the, from a certain psychoanalytic point of view, it's kind of a tortured soul. You know, I want to do this, but I can't do that. You know, dark, dark. Or terrible stories. Stories that sometimes, I think, wrongly, people say the children should not be allowed to read this. In the Bible, we shouldn't have this in, in, the, in the church school. Well, I sympathize with them occasionally. I taught church school for a long time to, to middle schoolers. And I tell you, when we get to those stories about... Uh, particularly about Abraham and Isaac, that's a little tough to get, you know, sort of eighth graders going on, you know. Maybe they should be shielded, right? But it's there. And some other stuff. I mean, adultery and fratricide and... By the way, that's oftentimes what the more optimistic folks say. Let's just get that... That's the way people used to think when they were primitive. But now, now that we're enlightened, we... So let me, let me just talk about that a little bit. Because there's a, not only do, is, the, is the biblical witness full of that kind of thing, intertwined with all the other stuff, I happen to think that's one of its great, part of its greatness, lofty, aspirational passages accompanied by really dark passages... And we're supposed to presumably draw sustenance from both of those. Or, as Calvin would say, wisdom from both of those. What's the wisdom to be gotten here? We have got a tradition which has a very specific theological take on all of that stuff. Now, the take is not just the following. Not just the following. It's not just that human beings can do terrible things to one another and to other creatures as well. That's there. I don't think... Well, Bart said, who lived through the struggle with the Nazis, 
Bart said, I don't think anybody who, his, his, I think I was kind of shocked when I read this. He said, I don't think anybody who's taken seriously the biblical narrative should be surprised by the terrible things we're witnessing in the Holocaust. He said, this is, this is kind of a, per, and you know, this is a man who courageously struggled, but he's clearly against that. But he, he, he said, I, I, I certainly am prepared to preach on that, preach on certain passages in the Old Testament as sort of, a sort of anticipation even of these terrible dark things. So it's not, it's not, new, it's not a news flash. Ter- the terrible things the human beings, by the way, not only have done, but continue to do right now to other human beings, that, that's, that's, not, that's not surprising if you've got this particular biblical view of things. Human beings are capable of awful things. By the way, one of the best books I've ever read on this general topic is not a theological book. It's a, it's a book by a, a journalist, actually, called Glover, I believe his name is. Jonathan Glover called Humanity. And that sounds like a wonderful title, except it's just an awful, scary book. Because the, the point of the book is, if you think about, you might say in sort of purely pragmatic terms, what humanity is in the light of the terrible things humanity have done, you will say humans are awful. And he, he argues it for 350 pages, you know, going through really just sort of one scourge after another. And he just pours cold water on all the suggestions that somehow things have really improved. Indeed, one of his most fundamental claims is as human beings develop more and more successfully resources to do what they want to do in the world, they do more successfully, more elaborately terrible things. So that's, that's one thing that's in there. But if that were all that were in there, I don't think this stigma in the minds of many secular humanists that our tradition is God, I don't think that would... We have quite the force that it, that it has. The reason why it has force is the following. We believe in our tradition not only that human beings are capable of really bad things in relation to other human beings, sometimes on a grand scale. We also believe that it's difficult in small ways for all of us to avoid some of that. I hope you see the difference. You know, if you look at some horrible thing like the Holocaust, or genocide in some country, you can say, well, over there, they're really bad people, but I'm really okay. Well, no, I'm not okay, I'm, 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 but I'm not too bad. I, let me put it that way. I'm not too bad. I think that's a common response. I'll plead guilty. And that can easily lead you to a kind of, shall we say, relatively benign view of human beings, and certainly of the kind of human beings that I, that I have dinner with. I'm speaking generically here. You know, the, kind of people that we have, the kind of people that we have dinner with, they're, they're, they're basically okay. Well, those passages in Paul, and not just in Paul, some of the most powerful things in the Old Testament about human frailty have to do with the fact that within the soul of each of us lies what propensity for some dark stuff even we after all calvin would say even we redeemed christians are still bloody self-absorbed love that british way of putting it bloody self-absorbed you know when we look within ourselves again some of the best preaching some of the best preaching on this topic says look deeply within by the way, going all the way to, to Augustine, it's not just reform preaching. Look deeply within, and you will see it's not such a pretty picture. I think Calvin would say that is the beginning of religious self-understanding. Not to have a kind of, what shall we say, relaxed view of your own self. But note what that, that turn, sort of turns the screw. It's not just that human beings are capable of bad things. It's that we're all, to some extent, drawn in that direction. Because we're sinful creatures, of course. And then there's this further element. This is the heart of the Niebuhr quarrel with John Dewey. Whole books have been written about this. I told you about John Dewey saying, well, if we just get the right conditions, and I, I would have to say a lot of what he has to say on that sounds, me, sounds to me on a certain level is right, and on another level it's just foolish. But on a certain level, you know, 
if we get good schools, if we get good economic conditions, if we get, if we get, if we get, or for that matter, if we get stable prosperity in Western Europe, then maybe there will no longer be any wars because, you know what I'm talking about there. By the way, I heard 20 years ago just an eloquent statement on that by one of the founding figures in the European Union. He, he would say there was not a dry eye in the house. You know, he said, if we just do this, if we just do this, if you, we could eliminate the scourge, meaning the war that constantly seems to be at the heart of Western Europe. It was that same kind of mentality. Dewey, as an eloquent proponent of educational reform and other kinds of reforms, said, in effect, if we just make these changes, then maybe these dark propensities of human beings will somehow fade. He never said bluntly they'll go away, but fade and they'll be marginalized. Now Niebuhr, arguing the other side of this equation, which of course is the equation that comes from our side, said no. And Niebuhr, by the way, was in his own politics on this subject, probably close to Dewey, and yet theologically on a, on a different planet. Niebuhr said, even under the best of conditions, human beings will still to some extent behave badly. Why? Because that is the human condition. That's the way human beings are. And by the way, that right there is one of the most important litmus tests to figure out where you stand on this. Even with the best of education, even with the best of this and the best of that, human beings will, they're wonderfully creative. They will figure out new ways to, you know, etc. But note what's implied by that. That is pessimistic. From the, from the Dewey point of view, that's utterly pessimistic. That's, come on, that means that progress in the, in the strong, deep sense is without of our reach. And then finally, just to complete the picture here, I hope you see why we're talking about something that's a, it's got to be in our culture, as any modern culture, a kind of object of serious content contestation when people think and talk about these things. And here's the final point. Final point is, you might say this is, from our point of view, religious wisdom at its foundation. The point is this. The only way that we're able to improve our circumstance is by the grace of God. Understand? By the grace of God. It's, it's a, and that's why our prayer is always for God to what? Do what God needs to do in order to redeem our circumstance. By the way, I have to throw in one other thing here. I oftentimes hear, it's not said bluntly, but it's kind of implied how can any follower of Jesus, who was such a loving person and such an affirming person, have any dark thoughts about the human condition? Well, I understand. But here's the answer. If you had to give the answer to that, it would be this. This Jesus died on the cross. And we interpret that symbolically, but not just symbolically, in the following way. When humanity is presented with a true example of the best, the reaction is not automatic attraction. Right? I mean, you could say that the story of Lent is the story of, in the first instance, human repulsion against the good. At least that's the way it's, I think, commonly interpreted in our truth. And I hope you see the power of that idea. You know, sure, we're the followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. We're, we're, we're disciples of somebody who wound up on a cross in spite of, or you might say because of, precisely because of, the goodness that that represents. So you might say the moral to that story is, not the whole story, not the whole moral, but part of the moral is when light shines into darkness, dark, darkness reacts by biting back. Here's a dark thought for you. <laughs> Now, where does this leave us? I hope you see, we're, we're talking about a complicated mix here. We're talking about, on the one hand, a source of ideas which can help but inspire us, right? The first part of what I talked about is inspirational 
in a powerful way. And by the way, when it is presented well in good preaching, or I think equally well, good music, you know, we're to that season of the year now where we're going to hear the Messiah, and there are parts of the Messiah which I don't care how many times I've heard it, just sort of lift my spirits. You walk out of there feeling, whoa. And it's, of course, it, it captures, the thing that's so powerful about it, it captures in a way that no eloquent preaching even can do a kind of lifting that is at the heart of the biblical idea, the biblical message. But then we equally, unless we're just, by the way, Tom Jefferson said, we need to clip out all that bad stuff in the Bible. Didn't he, didn't he say that? We, we, need, we need to sort of edit it. You know, edit, edit, edit all the bad stuff out so the good stuff is there. That's kind of secular humanism with a sort of almost perfect illustration. Now, I want to say, just to be a little polemical, nothing else I've said is polemical, <laughs> just a little polemical, if you do that, do that, you end up with mushy thinking. Because the other part is inescapable for understanding the full reality of the situation. But the full reality of the situation theologically is this. For all of our, for all of our, shall we say, capabilities, our enormous capabilities, we're deeply flawed creatures that are capable of using our excellence in perverse ways. Even on a small scale as well as a large scale. I hope you see, that's, that's a kind of complicated thing. It's not hopeful, but it's not, it's not naively hopeful, but neither is it utterly pessimistic. So where does that leave us in terms of expectations? Well, here's, here's my summary statement. I think I said last week, maybe the week before, I quoted an article from The Economist magazine about the Huguenots, or the Huguenot successors. <laughs> it's a wonderful article. You know, these are these. By the way, these French Protestants are extraordinarily important in the history of modern France in terms of making possible economic development and various kind of political institutions. And anybody who knows about French history knows this well. Small minority. By the way, I think maybe a model for us in the future. Just a guess. I once care. I once asked. I'm getting off topic here for just a second, but I once asked, in, when we were in Scotland, a friend of mine who's a real sort of devotee of French Protestantism. Um, I said, what do you admire so much about them? He said, you know, they took a really bad situation, being marginalized, you know, losing lots of their leaders by violence, being driven to the margins of their society. He said... They didn't fold up their tents. They didn't. Some of them left, but not all of them. Many of them stayed there, and they became a kind of leaven in French society. Isn't that a wonderful idea? Became a kind of leaven, and of course, we all know what leaven means. Sort of doing your best to enrich, improve. I think that and grow. Yes, yes. But isn't isn't that an interesting, suggestive image? Now, this this article from the Economist said this kind of a little bit predictably condescending attitude. And it said these Protestants are a little dour. You know, they're not joie de vivre. They're a little dour, a little negative even. And I, I kind of think they were implying it, that these French Protestants sort of they had a stance toward the wider culture of expecting the worst. That's the accusation that this humanism is kind of not quite real because ultimately Reformed Christians have a very pessimistic set of expectations and a ex pessimistic approach to life. I dissent, but not entirely. I think, and it's related to this point about French Protestants, if you look at the history of Reformed Christianity, Puritans, Huguenots, many of those wonderful Dutch Calvinists in this country as well as, of course, in, in the days of uh, the dominance of the Dutch Reformed in, in the Netherlands. These people were just bundles of energy, but full of important project which changed things in a profound way. 
profound way, just out there in the world, going to making a difference in the world. Sort of godly activists, if you will. Godly activists. That's the history. That's much of the history of Reformed Christianity. That's not the attitude of people who are just expecting the worst. They're what? They're out there in the world making a difference because they think that a difference can be made. I have a Jewish friend who characterizes the Jewish, the part of Judaism which he thinks is similar to the one that, uh, part of our tradition this way. He says, we think of ourselves as people who are constantly trying to repair the world. That's a very interesting image. Repair the world. He says, we see all kinds of brokenness, trying to repair the world. That's our calling. That's our calling, he says, as a, as a covenant people, to repair the world. Never fully, but now... How does that relate to expectations? I think the following could be said about Reformed Christians generally, at least the most common, but also I think the best, sort of in our history is this. We don't expect the we don't expect the worst, but nor do we expect the best. Let me say that again. We don't expect the worst, but nor do we expect the the, the best. As a matter of fact, our expectations about the world are cautious because we don't really know it's in the hands of God we really don't know I think that by the way is is one of the big themes of the Old Testament especially with the prophets it's unfolding we don't know we've been and by the way some of the best prayers it seems to me in the reformed tradition are God has put us in this situation how do we make the best we know that it's possible sometimes for the best thing to happen. We pray for that. We earnestly pray for that. In whatever circumstance we're in, could the better thing, even the best thing, happen? And I'm not talking about just on one thing. I'm talking about a whole series of different levels. But we also are not shocked, remember back Bart and the Holocaust, when the terrible thing happens. Why? Because we know that human beings often are just pernicious. And especially are they pernicious, if I can add a Bardian point here, especially are they pernicious when they get hooked on some one of these false idols. Calvin said, you know, the human mind is just a factory of idols when we get hooked on one of these ideals that, uh, idols that they worship. Now, there's one last point I want to make about that. That, therefore, is a somewhat, what shall we say, cautious stance towards what is actually coming. We're not expecting the worst. We're not expecting the best. We're hoping for the best, fearing the worst. I think there's a kind of tentative quality. If you just look at this, it's not at all just one thing or the other. But it is cautious, or as I put it before, critical. It's critical. It's not naive. Now, related to that is something which... You're going to be surprised by what I have to say about this, but I firmly believe this to be the case. I think Reformed Christians have a very strong conviction about the importance of institutions. You've heard this phrase, and it's usually the object of a joke in Presbyterian circles, especially in Presbytery meetings. Decently and in order. Have you heard that phrase? Dece session meetings. Decently and in order. That's a kind of important summary statement of our approach to church government. Things should be done decently and in order. And order means rules. And it means structures, well-established, well-maintained. Uh, there are a few anarchists wandering around the church, let alone the world, who are kind of uneasy with that. But it has long been one of our characteristic qualities. We are institution builders. We are institution maintainers. We build, Why? This isn't always the case, but more often than not, it is the case. We think of institutions as protection against the worst things that can happen. If institutions are well-established and well-maintained, they can do two things. Protect us against some of the worst things that can happen, but also, if they're really well-maintained, think of Calvin in Geneva constantly creating these new institutions. They can bring out the best in people. Institutional environment matters, but there, note the, note the, there's a clear bias there in the direction of stability. 
People need to get into a, a sort of routine, a set of habits, and keep, what, working at that. And by the way, I think that's one of the reasons why so many of us believe children's education is informed by this. It's no accident that Reformed Christians more often than not have been very insistent upon the formation of certain habits, which are institutions in their own way in the lives of children. I think that's a very important thing to know. I think that's part of this balancing act that we're involved in. Well, as usual, I've gone on too long. Let me entertain a couple of questions and then, yes, in the back. Um, two part question. One part looking back and then looking at that. Uh, much of humanism and, and Christianity seems to center around the nation of humans being worthy of special consideration. Yeah. Scientists tell us that we've descended from other primates in a more or less continuous fashion. What is there in theology uh, to deal with this notion of continual descent while yet saying humankind is somehow special, that God wants to commune with humanity, uh, when there may have been sure. ancestors with that Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful question. And I think the simple answer is this. Um, I have never in my life had a problem with theological problem with evolution because I think as this was clearly articulated when that debate first erupted in the 19th century that evolution itself can be interpreted as a providential process with a telos implicit in it and by the way I think that's kind of the common theological view on this now among people who really think about these things. Now, I realize that's imposing on that process a particular interpretation, but I would say the alternative is equally. And that is, the shall we say, the, the non-theistic view of it is also an interpretation of a set of events. Anyway, that's what I would say. Sure. I would wager that perhaps in, in the future we might encounter sentient life on some other planet. Sure. What apparatus is there in theology or among theologians to deal with the possibility of other beings that have a specialness comparable to ours or perhaps even... Well, that's why it's a good question. It's highly speculative. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I, said, I said, of course, too quickly. Uh, but but let's, let's concede your point. Um, I think... It's related a bit to the topic I was nibbling on the edges of last time about other religions. You know, do we worship the same God or do we worship some other God? And the, I would say the current view, or at least the more common view in, in reformed mainline circles, is well, we need to look at them and see what to make of them in the light of what we believe to be the case. In other words, we Christians think about God in a certain way, etc. Now, I would say the same thing applies here. We have, we have developed over the centuries a very, and I've just, you know, scratched the surface of it, a very, I would say, definite idea about what human beings are in relation to God. That is, we believe there is something that can, can be characterized, and this is a trope, an image, something that can be characterized as the image of God in us. Now, it would seem to me if we encounter another being, another kind of being, that might be, might be thought of as having some of the same qualities, then we would have to think about, I think we would have to rethink somewhat, the uniqueness of human beings. That's what we would have to do. And I don't think, by the way, that would be intellectually a, a bad uh, a move to make. Uh, but I think that, in other words, I, and I hope you see the style that I'm, I'm operating on here. We understand certain things to have been given to us through this revelation that we can make sense of, and then we march into the future trying to make sense of what new things emerge on that basis. Oh, but just a second. So, so do, you, you have, do you want to ask any, any more on that? All right. Yes. Well, sure, and that's related to the image question, image of God, image of God. And, 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 and I hope you understand, all these terms, uh, you, uh, 
they could there could easily be a series of talks on the soul, or for that matter, on the image of God. I'm just very quickly dancing over these points. I, I, I see the the enforcer, <laughs> the authority figure has stepped in.